Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And wow, we have a good one for you today. (laughs) This one scared the shit out of me in 2009. I saw this in theaters right when it premiered with my mother and my grandparents. (laughs) It scarred me then and it scarred me now on the rewatch. How many movies do you think you've seen in theaters with your grandparents? Oh, gosh. Like, <laughs> creeping into the 20s, I think. Oh, I feel I, like this is not the first movie we talked about that you saw first with your grandparents. No, for those of us who haven't listened to the first like episode or two, I got into horror movies because my grandparents would take me to them. And this was definitely one that was on the list that was like, what the fuck? It's like, you know, when you're a kid and you want to prove that you're not a kid and you're like, just watch, I can handle it. I couldn't No, handle, I've always no. been a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> this was my, I'll prove it to you. And then this movie came up and some of these scenes happened and I'm like, I'm scared. <laughs> well, today we're talking about The Orphan. Yes, from 2009. You just watched this for the first time. This is my second viewing. So how did you find this movie? I found it gripping. I was very invested. (laughs) I will say, because, you know, this came out in 2009, it's 2021. You know, I knew the spoiler, but I thought it was still really good. I didn't know like anything about the family. I didn't know who died. I didn't know who lived. So it was very scary. And I knew, I guess I knew about this movie for a while and it was something that I just actively stayed away from. So it was something that was kind of on my list of things that I definitely wanted to see and definitely wanted to prove to myself that I could sit through. So it was, it was a good one for that. If you like creepy kid flicks, this is the creepy kid flick after like maybe the omen and like the bad seed. If you want to get back into the fifties, Esther fucks shit up in this she movie. Does. To give a basic synopsis, it is essentially about this couple that is adopting their third child. They have two children of their own already, and they're looking to expand their family after a miscarriage. And they get nine-year-old Esther from Russia, and shit goes down. And a lot of things start happening around Esther. And we're like, why Why is that? And, and we see why that is in a big twisty twist in the end. But along the way, yeah, you have alcoholism. You have miscarriage trauma. You have marital disputes. You have disability advocacy. You have bullying. You have tension. Like there's so much happening in this movie, which I think works to humanize it. It might work to its detriment as well. Cause there's just a shit ton going on. Like the runtime is a little bloated. There's a lot going on. They don't really resolve everything. They start in my opinion, but like, it just keeps you there. Like every time you think it's going to let up it like pulls you by the collar again. It's just like, Nope, I'm not done. Yeah. Let's just get fucking into it. Yes. Okay. So how do we open up? Okay, so first scene, we have a lady. She's going into labor. We later learn that this is our heroine, Kate. She is walked to the front desk of a hospital with her husband, John. She's going into labor. But right away, we know that this must be some kind of dream sequence. It's very obvious. The lighting is very ethereal, a little bit blurred. And then all of a sudden, she's put in a wheelchair. She's being wheeled into delivery. And then there's blood everywhere. But nobody except Kate is reacting. The nurse continues to wheel her into the hospital. She's getting concerned. Next thing you know, she's on the operating table. She's going into C-section. She learns the news that her baby is dead. 
Anyway, this whole thing is happening. It's awful, very uncomfortable. Next thing you know, the dream sequence ends. The nurse holds up this baby, says, it's a girl. And this baby is just covered in blood. And Kate screams in her dream and then wakes up in the middle of the night. So right away, we start off with that sort of like very uncomfortable horror that I think really sets the tone for the rest of the kind of horror that's to come. I feel like so much of this movie is just being very uncomfortable and very, honestly, like very sad. (laughs) This feels very sad (laughs) and heavy. Heavy indeed. Like there's just a lot of medical imagery, a lot of blood. Mm -hmm. Kate is played by Vera Farmiga, which horror mommy of them all. Yeah, she's in a lot. She's in a shit ton. She's in the Conjuring film. She's in that Annabelle film. She's in Bates Motel. She plays Norma Bates. She and Patrick Wilson are horror mommy and daddy, in my mind. Like, obviously, they're in all (laughs) the Conjurings together, and they play the the Warrens, you know, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Obviously, she's just not known for her horror work. She's a very accomplished actress, but I know her from her horror performances, and she just fucking knows how to act. She acts her ass off in this movie. She's awesome. Yeah, so she wakes up, goes to the bathroom a little defeated, looks to take some sort of medication to calm her down. And then the next scene we see her in is a therapy session, which is great. We we love a lady who's taking care of herself. Through the therapy session, she's talking about the dream, how it's affecting her. And her therapist suggests that maybe it has to do with the fact that they are going to visit a, what the fuck is it called? An orphanage. (laughs) I was like, what's the name of the movie, Shay? I don't know. They're going to go visit an orphanage because they are in the process of adopting their third child. After the miscarriage of their daughter, Jessica, she feels as though she wants to take the love that she had for Jessica and give it to somebody who really needs it. So her therapist surmises she's just feeling some anxiety about going to visit some orphanages. But also through this conversation, you find out that Kate is a recovering alcoholic. After the miscarriage, she used that to cope. It's caused some problems in her family, and she's working through them with her therapist one-on-one. So you get to see here that Kate is very traumatized. Kate's been through a lot. There was a lot of ways that she tried to deal with the loss that she experienced. We don't really necessarily know when Jessica died from when this moment is, like the time between Jessica's death and the adoption process. But you do know it's enough time where you come to find out later scenes that Kate has lost her job at Yale, that she was responsible for an accident that happened with her other daughter. So enough time to where she has a past that we don't know makes her reliable or not as a narrator, but enough that is humanizing her and that we are on her side inherently. Next scene, we see her. She's picking up her daughter, Max, from school. Max, short for Maxine, super cute. And for the first time of many times in this movie, we see her almost get in a car accident. <laughs> I don't know what it is about her in cars, but man, she That's is. So true. <laughs> what is happening here? <laughs> so anyway, but she's fine. She does like the mom arm thing. Does she? I mean, her daughter's in the backseat, but obviously she stops the car. It's okay. Then she gets home home. She, what did I do? Oh, I said she plays a little ditty on her sexy Panamo. <laughs> Even I read that back. It was like, what was I saying? Anyway, she has this beautiful piano, which we later find out is what her job was at Yale, some kind of music teacher, music professor. Um, and then she starts writing. And so we see that perhaps composing is her job, very artistic. But then she gets interrupted by Max playing basketball outside. The ball is thumping against the wall. 
So she goes outside and asks Max to stop. And we realize Max is deaf. So they're having a conversation in sign language. And just then dad gets home, John, with Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel looks to be like 13 and Max looks to be seven-ish. Max is played by Ariana Engineer, and she is known mostly for this role, but was also in a Resident Evil film. And she also was in the Paralympics as a dancer. So I just thought that was super cool that she left acting behind after these two horror films, which, yeah, I don't know what her experience was like on those sets. Was that enough to be like, nope, I'm done. (laughs) I feel like her scenes are very traumatizing. She sees a lot with those eyes. And even even to be like faking, like acting, even knowing it's not real for her as an actress, like, I don't know. I feel like that would still be a lot for a little girl. So anyway, we're just seeing some scenes of the family and right away also characterizing this family and also characterizing Kate as a really good mom. She's very, very loving. And again, like she said, this actress, Vera, is she's so good. I don't know what it is about her. I just... Like, I don't know. I just feel like she's very believable for a storyline that ends up just becoming so insane. Okay. So nighttime comes around and oh, there's this really awesome scene. So Kate is in Max's room and puts her to bed and she takes out Max's hearing aid and puts it on the night table. And then for the rest of the scene, we don't hear anything except for like this, like really nice music in the background. It's like, as if we're kind of experiencing things from Max's perspective, this silence which I just thought was so cool. And Max chooses a story for her mother to read to her. That's about a little girl that loses her baby sister. And so we we're seeing the parallels between the loss of baby Jessica wasn't just felt by her parents. It was also felt by her would-be siblings as well. And, And again, just very touching, a really great characterizing scene, I think, between mother and daughter. I was like, this is really beautiful. It was probably one of the more beautiful scenes I'd seen in a horror movie. Our cute baby girl, Max, goes to sleep and Kate goes into the bathroom to brush her teeth. And this fucking mirror, Shay. Okay, the second time I see this mirror, they have the worst mirror cabinet ever in their master bathroom. It literally sounds like just like a screeching door, like the worst sounding thing you could have. But anyway, she opens it, gets her shit, like shuts it. And then her husband's behind her. We have a little jump scare. And they try to have, like, you can see this like nonverbal communication between them. Like he's kind of testing the waters to see if she wants to get down and crazy sexy. And she just gives him this kind of look, just like slowly pats him on the chest with both hands and almost says sorry with her eyes. Like, no, it's not going to happen. Absolutely. Like, okay. Like, it's just such, I just love this scene so much. Like they just, they hardly even, they don't even say anything to each other. They just like, but they have a full conversation. Like, no, hun, like I'm not feeling it. And she ends up talking about, I'm very stressed. We're going to see kids tomorrow. I don't know. I don't know. So then he calms her down. And then the next day they're off and they go to the orphanage. You know what that scene reminds me of? It reminds me of that scene in Us when the husband is like propositioning Lupita Nyong'o with like his like legs open on the bed and she's worried about like, God, there's tethers after us and there was a girl in the mirror and he's just like, I just wanted to get fucked. What? Like, I just wanted to have sex. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's exactly what it reminded me of. Oh, also such a good scene. This golden retriever husband energy and this like 
a little bit neurotic wife energy and like that's, mm-hmm. that's what it's going down. But I, what I also really appreciated about their exchange is John makes it very clear that he does not want to proceed with an adoption on his behalf. He is very supportive of her, wants her to feel ready. And this is where we get the dialogue of her saying, oh, I just really want to take this love I have for Jessica and give it to somebody who really needs it. But either way, you could tell that she's not complying. She is actively making a choice to seek out being a mother for a third time. So the next day they arrive at the orphanage, which my first note was, do these even exist anymore? The way this orphanage looks, it looks very old fashioned, like little children running around in uniforms in an old building, like very clearly like late 1800s, maybe early 1900s, like almost plantation style. It just looks very old and it feels very old. And I think it's meant to because we all know that there's something about old institutions of any kind that feel scary. (laughs) Right. I turned to the person I was watching this with and I was like, ah, this is just going to feel like a scene where like, no matter what it is, like, I know obviously there's institutions that behave like this, that have good intentions, but no matter what, it just feels like you're going to the pound and like just seeing all the puppies playing with each other. And that's kind of just how it's shot where it's like, these parents are coming in, the kids are all like playing and like doing their own thing. And then fucking John just wanders upstairs by himself. And I'm like, where's CPS? That's another question I have throughout the rest of the movie. Is Mm -hmm. who gave Vera Farmiga a driver's license and where the fuck is CPS? (laughs) Like those are two questions I have throughout the entire movie. But John wanders upstairs looking for the bathroom. And this is where he hears a little girl singing. This is Esther. She is painting. She is singing. He peeks his head in to kind of see who it is, goes to turn around and she stops him and was like, wait, come back, sit with me. And it reminded me of a, fuck, what is that nautical creature that sings to like- Siren. Yeah, that's what it reminded me of. It's just like this siren kind of like luring this working man in with with like some weird, like that's exactly what it reminded me of like to get his attention, but he goes and sits with her. She's painting and kind of talking about how all of her paintings tell stories. She is acting. Like, even though we know this actress is an actress, this character is acting and kind of being like, people say I'm different, but like, I think being different is a good thing. Like, da 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 I'm special. And this works because Kate ends up coming in and sitting with her, showing her the artwork. You know, Kate's an artist. She's a musician. So seeing somebody who has some creativity and, you know, a maturity about her really wins both of them over. I wrote Esther is conning the shit out of them. (laughs) And, you know, next thing you know, they're sitting with sister Abigail in her office and she slaps down this file. It's like the dictionary talking about Esther's past, about how she emigrated to the United States and her first family died in a fire very tragically, but otherwise that she's very well behaved and very mature talking her up emphasizes how well-mannered she is and just talks about as long as you don't touch the ribbons on her wrists and neck, she's good. So that's a little like, Hmm. It's like that fucking story, scary Mm -hmm. stories to tell in the dark about the girl with the green ribbon. So Esther, who is played by Isabel Berman, which Because you put the notes together, put like she is known for being in the Hunger Games. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh my God, she's that fucking crazy bitch from like District 12. (laughs) District 2. She plays 
Yeah, yeah. She plays one of the careers. So she's in oh like my God. That, those like four that like train for the Hunger Games their entire life. She plays Clove. She originally, I think, went for the role of Prim, Katniss's little sister. But oh then they, my God. But then they put her in Clove. But what I found more interesting is when they were going to make the remake for Suspiria, she was set to be Chloe Grace Moretz in that movie she was going to like star in Suspiria and then it got delayed and then I guess she got caught up in other projects oh my god and and she didn't end up being in Suspiria but she was almost in the reimagining of was it 2020's Suspiria I think or 2019 maybe 2019 I feel like 2019 yeah which we haven't seen we watched the original but mm -hmm. and I just have to say this because it's like such a part of who I am bad lip reading on YouTube (laughs) there's a Hunger Games version from like I don't even know 2000. 12 and there's a bad lip reading with Isabel Furman when she's saying like obviously these aren't her lines it's like the dub over but she's like you went out with Brian now I'm local crazy <laughs> and like this for some reason like I just that made me laugh so hard the first time I saw it it's like burned into my brain so when I realized like this was her I'm almost glad I didn't realize it until after I watched the movie because <laughs> I think it would have taken away some of the fear for me, honestly. I would have just been like so pleased the whole time watching her. <laughs> you would have just been like waiting her for her to say like loco crazy. <laughs> loco crazy. <laughs> anyway, if you haven't seen it, go see it. Bad lip reading, Hunger Games. Okay. <laughs> but to close out that scene, Esther's adopted. The parents come back a couple weeks later to pick her up. And what I found interesting, and I didn't realize this till the second viewing of this movie. Sister Abigail's like kind of waving them off and being like, everything's going to work out great. And she has her fingers crossed behind her back. It clearly shows that she has her fingers crossed behind her back. It's not an intentional shot, but in the wide shot, you can see it. So this is hinting that Sister Abigail knows a little bit more than she's letting off about Esther. Because when they're in the adoption house, I guess, Kate is downstairs waiting for John to come down. She's chatting with Sister Abigail. John's not coming down. So they both go upstairs. And the first time Sister Abigail sees John has taken an interest in Esther, she gets this look on her face like, oh shit. But then it goes away because then she says all those nice things. I was like, okay, well, maybe she's really not in the know. But hearing this, I'm like, maybe that look really was for something. Maybe she does know something is up with her. And also like Esther's upstairs, like painting. She's not with all those other girls. And part of me is like, is that Esther's choice? Or is it like maybe sister Abigail being like, maybe you should stay up here today. Maybe you're not ready. I don't know. Those are just things that I was thinking about. Yeah. Part of me can't tell if she just wants to be a pick me girl or, (laughs) and and that's kind of how she's doing it. Just trying to be like. I like being alone. And like, even mm-hmm. in the dialogue, they're like, well, I'm going and playing with the little kids. She's like, I never really saw the point in it. I'm like, you're nine. What are you doing? <laughs> like, it's just like, she's acting like an into fucking lectual. Just she like, is such a pick me girl. She's, she's acting like a pick me girl. And I'm like, shut up, Esther. Okay. So where are we now? I'm so excited to be talking about this because by the way, y'all, I just finished watching this not even an hour ago. <laughs> This was my timeline this time. And I am like, I'm still sweating. I'm so sweaty, like thinking about this, talking about this. Okay. (laughs) I think the next thing we get is her meeting the siblings for the first time at the house. Yes. 
They drive home together. And by the way, okay, so they live in Connecticut. I saw a license plate. They live in Connecticut. It's beautiful. It's snowy. And the house they live in is incredible. And I actually think John might be an architect because there was that scene later where like she's painting next to him and he has this big drawing board in front of him. And I'm like, he might be an architect or some sort of engineer. Anyway, beautiful fucking house, huge, stunning features. And so she even says, is this your house? Like at first she really is the belle of the ball. She meets the kids right away. She clicks with little Maxie. Maxie is so excited to have a sister and Esther seems so excited to have a sister as well. But Daniel doesn't seem too pleased with Esther. And it's not even because Daniel is getting bad vibes from her. He's just kind of a little bitch. (laughs) He's just kind of a little bit of a bitch. But you know what? How old is he? Is he nine too? No, I think he's like 13, like 12, 13. Yeah. He's got got like the swoopy hair. He has shag mags in his treehouse. Not saying Yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm not I'm not saying that like 11 year olds can't have shag mags, but he is like growing around with his guys and playing guitar here. Like, I don't know. Like I, I understand how he's read is very useful because even when Esther's kind of like opening her, like welcome home presents, he's still vying for his dad's attention and being like, mm-hmm. dad, watch me get like solo and stuff like that. But <laughs> yeah, when, when the porn came out in the treehouse with his friends, I was kind of like, ah, you're at least 13. You at least right. That's you're, a good you're, point. you're supposed to be aged at least a little bit. So yeah, I wrote Daniel is not amused and tries to show off as Shay said, because he's jelly. So right away, we're getting this sibling rivalry between those two. Meanwhile, Esther and Max are playing outside in the snow and Kate and her mother-in-law are looking through the window at them getting along so well. We're getting this really good sense of, hey, this is working out. But somehow something about a previous accident gets brought up. I think the mother-in-law says something to Kate about you know, do you ever get nervous about Max going so close to the water? Kate says, no, she doesn't remember anything about that. So we get this really vague bringing up of some kind of accident. No clarity at this time. But then this is where we also learn that Kate used to work at Yale, which we can assume had something to do with music just because of her previous scenes. And of course, the mother-in-law is like stereotypical mother-in-law. It's a little bit of like a passive aggressive compliment. Like that was a good job. But you had to reach the bottom so you could figure it out. It's like, I'm sure she knows mom-in-law, but thinks anyway. So that scene is over and the nighttime comes. And of course it storms and Esther wakes up and we see her kind of become alert very quickly. And she goes into Max's room and Max is dead asleep, right? Because keep in mind, she is deaf and she's not going to wake up in a thunderstorm without her hearing aids on. All right. She is a rock right now. She is getting her Z's. So Esther wakes her up. And then the next scene is them coming into their parents' room when Kate and John were just about trying to get it on. Right. John definitely has his pants off under the covers. Like he was about to get a little bit of a handy because things are going well with the kids. We're getting our sex drive back, right? Kate's less stressed. She's feeling herself. But of course, Esther comes in with Max and says, we were scared of the storm. And she says, I want to sleep next to daddy. (laughs) I know. Not good. And she says, daddy, you know, if you took a shot every time Esther said, daddy, if you're of age over 21, you would definitely be drunk because really, especially towards the second half of the movie, like you're really going to be banging them back. 
this is the first little sign of like deceptiveness that we're seeing from Esther, besides being a pick me girl and being a little annoying. This is the first sign of her going out of her way to get her dad's attention. And this becomes a theme throughout the rest of the movie. So the next day, Max and Danny are ready for school. They come running down the stairs and they're both giggling. And Kate's like, what's up? And then she turns and sees Esther in a fucking Puritan dress, which is a theme. She really likes it dressing in period pieces. I wonder why. And That's just from 1864. <laughs> Kate is trying to gently dissuade her, trying to be like, what about those jeans I bought you? And things like that. But Esther pulls the, I thought you liked that I was different. And her mom's like, yes, of course, you can do whatever you want. But that doesn't stop her classmates from jeering at her and making fun of her because kids are mean. But also, I will say, are kids really that mean when they're nine? How old are you when you're nine in the third, the fourth grade? You turn nine when you're in the third grade. So like, what the fuck? Also, that little curly headed snot is so mean to Esther in front of the whole class. And that teacher does literally nothing, which is very unrealistic. Like that little girl, we are escorting her away to have a conversation <laughs> with, with somebody because you don't get to just say things like that. Like, that's just like not what you do. So anyway, did, I don't know. What did she even say? Is it like little Bo Peep called she wants her outfit back yes, or something? That's like- exactly it. Yeah. Sick fucking Very clearly bird. rude. Yeah. <laughs> little Bo Peep's a working woman. Okay. You know what? You're right. She's a fashion icon. Have you seen Toy Story? Okay. She's the, she is she's the sexy woman. <laughs> but she is the hottie of that before Jesse comes along. I am just saying, oh, both yeah. people it. So mm-hmm. what's her face can sit the fuck down? Yeah, she clearly doesn't. She's not cultured. She can take she's all nine. Yeah, she has a lot to learn. Maybe she should be paying attention in her third grade class. Okay, to catch up. <laughs> Exactly. But Esther gives her like a look, gives her stare down. So we know shit's going to go down later in the movie. But next we see Esther playing with Max on the frozen pond lake. I say pond lake because I don't know how deep this body of water is. I don't know whether they're they're allowed to live on a lake. It's It's a pond that's like the size of a lake. You could tell it has depth. There's a lot of things going on. I'll tell you exactly what it looks like. Have you guys ever seen that movie? Oh shit. I actually don't know how to describe it. It was like a Disney channel original movie about this girl who liked to ice skate, but her mom was kind of strict about it. And then eventually she ice skates and she always like went outside and practiced on her little backyard pond. Do you know what I'm talking about Shay? Because the pond in the backyard of this movie looks exactly like the pond in the backyard of that movie. Even honestly, go figure. Thank you. Maybe even a little smaller. So it, it is very like backyard, small situation. Yes, but Esther is flinging Max around on a sled. And this very much upsets Kate, who runs out. It's like, you don't play on the ice. You know that. And she's frantic. This is, again, calling back to an anxiety that she has surrounding Max Mm -hmm. in the water. And this is something I like about the movie. I guess it's spoiling it. We don't ever learn what happens. And I kind of like that we don't have to, because they tell us enough to know that Maxine was put in danger because of Kate being drunk and not paying attention to her and realizing that she got too close to the water. We can presume she maybe fell in the water or that the ice broke or that Maxine was in danger, but they don't baby us. They don't give us a flashback. And I kind of like that they give us enough to know that shit happened. 
very much like some stuff that comes up with John later in the movie. They don't hold our hands through it. And I like that they are really trying to build these parents as people who've gone through shit without having to handhold us and show us everything. So that's something I'll give to the movie because I appreciate that in the time that they did take they're building complex characters without making it seem like we're watching the entire life story of four people at once. And also we see that as Esther's character continues to develop, we see that she's very manipulative and she's able to take these little bits that she learns at first and use them to her advantage. So I think that like us learning along with her kind of works. And also what is up with this family and always having really important conversations in the middle of their like open floor plan living room where literally anybody could hear ever just by existing? Like they really need to put an end to that because honestly, that's really the root of a lot of their problems. Esther didn't even have to try to hear everything most of the time. Like they literally just had these deep conversations with a therapist while the kids were home. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I can almost see the director trying to place Isabel Furman in places where you could tell that she would hear it. But in reality, you could probably stand down the street and hear the fucking echoes off of this like living room chamber. It's all glass. Yeah. It's all reflective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I was thinking about that too. But this, <laughs> this is where we get a scene with Daniel playing with a paintball gun. A pigeon decides to land on his shooting range. And I guess by boy curiosity, he decides to see if he can hit it. And he does and severely wounds this bird. He's very distressed. He's very upset. And Esther and Maxine come walking into frame and Esther hands him a rock. And it's like, you heard it. You need to put it out of its misery. Like you need to kill it. He refuses to do it. And she hurts this bird by crushing it with a rock. And pretty much shows that she is capable of some fucked up shit for a nine-year-old because obviously I think they're trying to draw parallels that like, you know, psychopaths or or sociopaths, I'm putting these things in large quotes because traits aren't consistent and I'm not diagnosing her. I'm not trying to diagnose her, but that she at least lacks a level of empathy. So that night, Kate is in the bathroom with Esther. You can tell they're getting ready for bath time. Esther leaves the room and shuts the door behind her, of course. But as she's walking down the hallway, she hears that Esther has locked the door from the inside. So Kate turns around and knocks on the door, knocks on the door. Finally, Esther opens it and Kate says, hey, you know, we don't lock doors in this house. You have to leave it unlocked. Esther says, what if somebody comes in and sees me? And finally, they strike this deal that, hey, as long as Esther sings while she is in the tub, then for tonight, we will strike this deal, right? Kate's really trying to meet her in the middle, knowing that, you know, she's nine years old, trying to be comfortable in this house. This is what they'll do. So Esther's in the tub singing whatever song she's singing. Again, back to this siren imagery mentioned, which I still am thinking about. So perfect. Kate is in Esther's room putting laundry away. She opens a drawer and finds this book, which I guess ends up being some kind of old Bible. It has like a leather cover and Kate sees a picture on the inside. She doesn't really get a chance to look at it because she drops the book. It makes a big noise. Esther's singing stops temporarily. So Kate puts it away quickly. And we're not sure if Esther saw or not. School the next day, bullying continues. Yeah, bullying continues. First of all, her brother Danny uh, just shoves her books down in the middle of a crowded hallway for no fucking reason. Like, way to be horrible, I guess. And, you know, you could tell that his friends are calling her weird and he feels the need to distance himself 
And it's the same curly Q girl who said the Bo Peep comment. And I forget what she's saying this time. Just a lot of mean things. But she reaches for Esther's neck ribbon just to be like, what are you even wearing these for? Blah, blah, blah. And Esther freaks. She lets out this big, long scream. We are cutting to the next scene. Esther's home from school and she's sitting at the piano with her mother, Kate. And they actually have this really sweet moment. Kate says, you know, the teacher told me what happened at school today. I want you to know you can talk about it. She pulls out this little leather bound book she has. She says, I saw that you had a Bible. I have one too that I write things in. And I thought maybe we could start one together as a scrapbook. And she goes through and shows some pictures. She gets to a picture of Esther, like the day Esther joins the family. And it's really sweet and touching. And then Esther says, who's Jessica? Kate tells her the story and Esther even starts crying. And she's like, as a character, really good actor. As an actress, really good actress. Like, how old is Isabella at this point? Like, she's not very old at all. I think she's 12 playing nine. She does such a good job. It's like a very touching scene. And then Kate takes Esther to this like little atrium green room that they have, I think like as part of the house, because it's that kind of house and shows her this beautiful white rose bush. She explains, this is where we scattered Jessica's ashes. We feel that as long as this plant is alive, part of Jessica's alive too. Very touching scene. Yeah. So next scene we see is another scene essentially of Esther interrupting John and Kate getting down. And it leads to my favorite comedic part of the movie where you can tell that she walks in on them fucking having sex in the kitchen, which it's like, go anywhere else. It's just such an open floor plan. They can't. (laughs) (laughs) But they, the next day, Kate's like, Esther, we need to talk about what happened in the kitchen yesterday. And Esther goes, do we? (laughs) she's She's very resigned. And Kate tries to give a very rudimentary level birds and the bees talk. And Esther's just like, I know. And we watch this movie on YouTube, which means they kind of cut out some of the more derogatory language, but they're the Oh, really? They did. They did. There's a line that follows that that's just like, I know men and women fuck. Like it's (gasps) where she says something very vulgar like that. Uh And because it's free on YouTube, they take out some of the more R-rated stuff. And that that is a line that's in the movie is like, I know that men and women have sex or I know that men and women fuck something like that. And Kate is obviously very jarred by her rebuffed attempts at kind of having a sex talk with her adopted daughter. But the next day we see that kids are at the playground with John and there is a... (laughs) I wrote PTA slash HOA mom flirting with dad at the playground because it is just this busty mom who wants John to come over and help her move a chair. And she's being a little outwardly flirtatious. Esther takes notice to this, but John is respectful enough to rebuff her advances, but is still kind of engaging in the conversation, maybe a little longer than he should. This scene, (laughs) this scene kind of reminds me of Like, if a film student had to take a sitcom and edit it into a horror movie, and this is kind of how I feel about this scene, where this bully, her name is Brenda, by the way, the curly-haired girl who's like... Brenda! Of course, Brenda. Brenda, who's the one who made the Bo Peep comment, has been making fun of Esther and her ribbons and her Bible... Brenda is walking around this kid's castle looking thing and is so suspicious 
And I don't know why she's feeling suspicious. Well, like, because Esther keeps looking at her like like a fucking crazy. Like the look she gives is ice, pure ice. I understand that, but it's still like she is like navigating this playground like she's never seen another kid before. Like a kid like goes on the monkey bars and she's like, oh. And then she like climbs up the ladder and a kid like goes down the slide and she's like, ooh, like they are trying to score this. Like it's so suspenseful. And I understand because something suspenseful ends up happening, but it's like, why is she acting so suspicious and fearful? But you come to find out why, because she's standing at the top of the slide and essentially what it is, it's like one of those long metal slides where there isn't really any safety or handrails. So if you were to miss the slide, you are taking a very deep plunge. So she is looking down the slide, kind of like peering out for Esther, I suppose. And then Esther comes up behind her and shoves her and she flies off the top of the slide, hits her ankle on the way down, breaks it and hits the ground and cries. And the next scene that we see is the family awkwardly sitting at dinner where Esther and Max are saying adamantly that Brenda slipped, where John is saying that Brenda's dad is saying that you pushed her. Is that true? So there's just some awkward tension there. And it gets more awkward when it shows that Danny doesn't know American Sign Language because he's trying to ask Max to pass something and he tries to defer to the mom to say, can you tell her to do this? Whereas Esther signs immediately right in front of him and is able to communicate. So you can see that Danny is feeling insignificant, not only from the lack of attention that he's receiving from his father and his mother with Esther's arrival, but also that Esther is taking a little more consideration to communicate in the way that her sister can communicate back But this causes Danny to get very xenophobic very quickly, does a lot of this go back to where you came from, and says, she's not my fucking sister, and storms away from the table, which causes his little treehouse porn hub to get locked up until he can apologize, which he doesn't want to do. So next scene, mom and the girls, Max and Esther, are at the store, and sister Abigail from the orphanage calls. She's checking in to see how everything is going. How's Esther? Kate says she's great. She's actually right here. Esther say hi. Esther does not want to. She gets really short really quick. So then Kate's like, sorry. So then the girls kind of walk away down the aisle and Kate continues talking to sister Abigail and kind of lets her know like, oh, there was this one thing that happened, an incident at the park. We're not really sure what happened, et cetera, et cetera. As per usual, Esther overhears this conversation and she's not pleased. So the next scene, all of a sudden, Esther's playing Tchaikovsky (laughs) like a pro on this beautiful baby grand piano or grand piano. I don't know. And Kate kind of sees her and is like, like, what's going on? I thought I was teaching you how to play the piano. You told me you didn't know how to play. Esther says, I never told you that. I said you could teach me how to play. Kate was like, well, you know, I wouldn't have done that if I knew that you could play like this. And Esther says, it must be frustrating for you to have a son who's not interested and a daughter who can't even hear. Like she, like mega bitch comment. Like, oh, and that's the kind of shit that Esther pulls. So like, I don't know what her deal is. Is this just like, she chooses this as the time to like start dragging Kate? Is she mad at Kate for having this conversation with sister Abigail? Like, Is that what made her so angry at her mom? Was she always going to be angry at her? Is that her thing? I have a feeling that due to the multiple daddy issues that we see throughout the rest of the movie, that it was always going to be a competition to get John's attention and drive a wedge 
between him and Kate, which happens in the very next scene because Kate feels very frustrated because she essentially just got gaslit by her own adopted daughter, right? Because she's like, she told me she didn't know how to play. Now she's playing Tchaikovsky. Like, why is she lying to me? Like, like, I will say that Kate in this scene's a little unbelievable for how, like, betrayed she feels by a nine-year-old, but it's still weird, right? Like, it's still, like, a little discomforting. Mm-hmm. And John says something of, like, oh, well, you know, she's a kid. You can't trust everything she says. I was like, oh, so I shouldn't trust what she told me about the HOA Joyce. mom then. Yeah, Joyce. <laughs> then, huh? And he's like, oh, like, what did she say? And it's like that you guys were flirting with each other and she invited you over. And you can tell that, you know, her words have a little bit of edge to them. And he says, it's been 10 years. I gave you a second chance. So we're learning that there was perhaps some infidelity in John's past. But she also says two years since I learned Yes, but, but then he counters back with, well, yeah. you put our child in danger. So you could tell that they kind of are like one-upping each other. They're, they're just trying to hit each other where it hurts. And this, again, like we don't ever find out about the infidelity or the adultery or anything like that. It doesn't hold our hand through it. And it kind of almost makes sense as to why we see them so like honeymoon phase E. You could tell mm. that they're kind of in a phase where they're reconnecting and they're mm-hmm. trying to forgive each other and trying to grow together. Like you can tell that they are really like in a secure place until Esther is whispering in his ear and then is whispering in her ear about certain things and begins driving this wedge in between them. And this is the first instance of that but it continues throughout the rest of the movie and it escalates when sister abigail shows up the very next day to talk Mm -hmm. to them and she has news so i guess she and again did she know this before i don't know but she says basically wherever esther goes trouble follows there was an issue here. There was an issue here. There was an issue with a little boy at Esther's last school who fell on a pair of scissors and stabbed himself. And Esther was there, which John goes, I don't understand. He accidentally stabbed himself when Kate starts getting a little bit nervous about this pattern. Like, I don't know. It feels a little bit concerning, right? But he's like, I don't know. He accidentally stabbed himself. Like it's as if saying, I don't know. He stubbed his toe. Like it just feels a little bit. Especially then when they reveal that the reason that her previous foster family don't have her anymore is because the house burned down in a case of arson. And they don't know who did it. mm -hmm. Red flag city, red flag city. So Sister Abigail, again, fills in some of the details about Esther's troubled past. And of course, Esther fucking hears because everyone likes to have conversations in the middle of the fucking household. So she goes into Max's room because she has Max under her thumb. She tells Max, there's a bad lady here. Will you help me stop her? And of course, Max says, okay, because she's so sweet and loving. So Esther kind of gets this whole plan together. She wants the key to the treehouse, gets the key to the treehouse, opens up the safe. Bitch has got a lot to say. Anyway, opens up the safe, (laughs) gets the gun. There's a revolver in the house. Okay. She conceals the gun or whatever, and they find the key to the treehouse. And once they find the key to the treehouse, they go out to the street where Esther is setting her plan to stop Sister Abigail in motion. And Sister Abigail is played by CCH Pounder. And I hadn't heard of her before, but when I looked at her Wikipedia, she's one of those people that it takes you to a different page that she's been in so much shit. Oh my like, God. 
she's in NCIS, she's in ER, she's in The Shield, like all recurring roles, mm. multiple seasons. She's just a, like a really, really successful TV and film actress. Mm. Yeah. Oh, and I like her. She has a good presence. So she is driving down the street in her car. We see her fumbling to grab her pack of cigarettes. She needs to smoke, right? She's stressing. And meanwhile, we see Esther and Max on the side of the road. Esther telling Max, you're going to just make sure she pulls over, et cetera, et cetera. Car's getting closer. Car's getting closer. And then Esther shoves Max into the middle of the road. Sister Abigail sees her in time. Thank God. She swerves, ends up off the road, gets out of the car immediately and goes to help Max. And of course, she had just come from John and Kate's house. She knows who Max is. And so she's like, Max, you know, what are you doing here? And then, of course, Esther is around and she hits Sister Abigail on the head with a hammer that she had taken with them from the house. Sister Abigail is knocked out. The girls drag her from the road. Just in time, a car almost sees them, but doesn't. And then they successfully roll Sister Abigail down the hill. So she's out of eyesight from the street. Yeah. So then there's a quick succession of scenes that follow. Esther and Max hide the evidence in the floorboards of Danny's treehouse, which is where he keeps his shag mags. Esther that night holds a knife to Danny's neck, asking him what he saw he claims he didn't see anything. He sees a little more than he lets on. But this is like the first overt action against both of the siblings in the same day of like, Esther's dangerous and we'll put you in harm's way if you get in her way. Esther goes to the therapist, charms her to Kate's dismay. Then Kate gets defensive when the therapist calls her out that she is misplacing her anger and putting her grief over Jessica and displaying it on Esther. And I love this scene because. John very seriously is just trying to advocate for his daughter, which he believes can't advocate for herself in this moment. We're starting to paint Kate as a, almost like the mad woman trope, but it's just like, okay, like, who do we believe here? The woman who just went through a serious trauma with loss, who has a issue with addiction and is going through a lot, or this nine-year-old child who's had a very hard life and is just trying to adjust to her new one, right? So this therapist is showering Esther with compliments and it is juxtaposed with Esther throwing a tantrum in a bathroom stall, her punching and kicking this toilet paper dispenser and punching the walls because she can tell that Kate is onto her and she is just so fucking frustrated. So it's all of this, you know, I don't see a problem with her. Bang, bang, boom. She is just so well-mannered. Bang, bang, boom. Like she is screaming. She is bloodying her knuckles and we're really starting to see everybody unravel a little bit. And of course, tension is getting worse between parents. Next thing you know, Kate gets a call from sister Judith asking, hey, did my girl sister Abigail make it to her appointment with you? (laughs) Kate says, yes. Cut to scene of police officers finding sister Abigail's dead body. Then they are in the house with Kate and John, just ending an interview with them. Kate and John are saying, how tragic, how tragic, how tragic. So Abigail's body is found. Add it to the list of things that are starting to go wrong in Esther's presence. Then we have this scene. (laughs) Esther is standing in her bedroom, fucking around with the black light on her fish tank. And when the black light is off, all of her paintings look the same. Or this one painting, I should say, of like this beautiful house, like a family house and blah, blah, blah. So cute. But then when the black light is on, she did all of this crazy, creepy graphic artwork of like disembodied people and fire and other dead bodies and all of this mayhem. And again, just kind of adding this escalation to the scene. And this is like the black light artwork that kind of decorates like the preliminary images of the movie. Like when you're first being introduced, it's kind of like one of the iconic images. 
But anyway, all of this shit that's going on, mom is researching and she's trying to find out some tea. And eventually she realizes that the orphanage that they got Esther from has no record of her. Yes. And this is where she starts to go off the rails a little bit, being like, mm-hmm. I think Esther's responsible for sister Abigail's murder. And if I'm John in this situation, I'm looking for empty bottles around the house. Like you're crouching a little bit into I'm worried about, well, maybe a lot of it into I'm worried about you territory. John is unconvinced. And especially because Katie's being very dismissive of her therapist now. She's like, mm-hmm. he's even like, we took her to your therapist. Your therapist gave the okay. She's the professional here. Like, why don't you believe her? And she's like, well, I'm not seeing her anymore. And you know, that's kind of like a very classic trope in film and media. If someone starts to dismiss quote unquote unbiased trusted source that it's like, uh, okay, we're not supposed to trust you as a narrator anymore, but we are seeing everything from Kate's perspective. We know that Esther's evil. We know that there's shit going down, but John remains unconvinced. And you can see that John is really trying to extend that empathy to Esther. He lets her play hooky from a doctor's appointment and Esther's really lathering him up with some weird compliments. Like, I like it when it's just the two of us. And I don't think mommy likes me very much. He's like, you know, like maybe you should just go and do something really nice for her. And maybe you should just show her how much you love her. And this is the most upsetting scene of the film, I think. Because we know through context that she understands what the flowers in the atrium mean to Kate that Jessica's memorial means to Kate, that Jessica's loss means to Kate. So Kate arrives home that day and Esther's like, mommy, mommy, I have a surprise for you. And out from behind her back, she pulls plucked roses from Jessica's memorial in the greenhouse. All of the roses. All of them. Mm -hmm. And she goes off the rails. Mm Mm-hmm. Kate freaks and she does she she grabs Esther yes. and kind of like shakes her and Esther sort of falls to the floor and then kind of runs away before John and Kate have kind of have another conversation. And he kind of tries to calm her down. He says, This is my fault. I told her that she should do something. But then the next scene, I guess because Esther ran away so quickly after that encounter, at night she sneaks into I guess maybe John's like tool room or something. And she puts her arm into, I guess like, I don't even know what to call it. Just some kind of tool that you like gradually crank it and it becomes tighter and tighter and tighter. My dad used to have one on his workbench growing up. Like I- It's a press. It's it's essentially like trying to hold something still or if you're applying adhesive to two pieces of wood, crank this so that there's literally no room for like air or resistance so that things can meld together. But it's made of iron. So it's- obviously very forceful. And she puts her arm into that shit and puts a fucking rag in her mouth and cranks it until she breaks her fucking arm. And you see her arm kind of pop. It's a very unsettling scene. So then she screams. She, I guess, goes to bed. We hear her yelling, daddy, daddy. He gets up, goes into her room, looks at her arm. Of course it's bruised. It's awful looking. They take her to the ER. And then we see John confronts Kate. You broke her arm. So then this just adds more fuel to the fire. Kate saying, I did not grab her that hard. But of course, this little girl's arm is broken. No one's first instinct is going to be that she broke it herself. We continue going into the spiral of we know how it looks. We all know how it looks, (laughs) but it is not what it looks like, you guys. 
And then we just get this like weird imagery of like, obviously like when you're a kid and you you're hurt or you're sick, you want to sleep in your parents' bed with them. But knowing what you know about Esther and her infatuation with John, the fact that the imagery is her waiting for him in bed where he shuts the door to his wife and sequesters her to the couch is showing what command of power that she's gotten over the situation. She has effectively driven a wedge between this couple to the point that Kate drives herself to the liquor store and buys herself two bottles of wine because her life is really unraveling. And she sits and she stares at that glass of wine and ends up dumping out the glass and the remainder of the opened bottle, leaving the unopened bottle around, which very readily gets used against her. Next day at school, Kate picks the kids up from school, all three. Daniel's walking down the steps, his backpack. All of a sudden, all of the shit falls out of the bottom of it. You know Esther tampered with that shit. So while Kate's distracted with her son's backpack after already having gotten little Max in the car, Esther goes around, puts the car in neutral, turns off the emergency brake, and the car goes backwards. You have this iconic scene. Kate is running down the street. Some random dad, bless his heart, sees what's going on and tries to intervene. This random dad is like, I'm here. He can't. He takes a spill. But thankfully, the car only hits a snowbank. The other drivers who almost hit the car swerve out of the way in time. The car hits the snowbank. And Max is okay physically, of course, mentally. Add this to the list of things she's going to have to go to therapy about for the rest of her <laughs> fucking life. <laughs> this poor fucking child. So this is the last straw for Kate. She's freaking out. She knows that Esther had some bullshit to do with that. Next scene is therapist is in home. So she's doing an in-home visit. They're talking and John does not believe a word that Kate says. And the therapist is also on John's side. Again, we know how this looks. And John basically gives Kate an ultimatum. It's either like, I'll give you however many days to decide you're going to go to rehab or like, that's it. You have to go to rehab or I'm taking the kids. And again, this is when I wrote, what is up with all these conversations in the middle of the house? Because guess who's fucking listening? Esther. She's always listening. And it's not even hard. She doesn't even have to try. And this is amplified because Esther is the one that found the unopened wine bottle proving that Kate went out and purchased alcohol. So Esther turned this bottle over to her father, which is again, proving intent that she at least was going to drink at some point. And she's like, I wanted to drink, but after how much I hurt this family, I would never drink again. You have to believe me. And John just says, I don't. So you could tell that trust that they really built up since the accident with Maxine has been shattered. And you can tell that Max can hear a little bit what's going on because she has cochlear implants and she's starting to feel like, I know what you did and you put me in danger, like kind of like what the fuck. But she says, I'll shoot mommy if you tell. So Max is being blackmailed into silence. Danny is being blackmailed into silence because he knows that his mother's in danger if he tells on her. And this is where, like, the great confrontation happens. And essentially, Kate goes into Max's room, and Esther is sitting there, like, watching over a sleeping Max. And she's like, Esther, like, what are you doing in here? And Esther's like, well, we're we're past all this mother-daughter stuff, aren't we? And it's like, <laughs> Like, it's just it's nuts. And Esther starts fucking reciting passages from Kate's journal that she found. Again, Kate let Esther in on this information that she keeps a journal. Esther found it and she starts reciting Jessica's death, like mm. her journal entry 
about Jessica's death and it is so uncomfortable and like you could tell Kate is so frustrated and so like beside herself she's like what are you gonna do hit me oh my god I want to but it's just like at this point we still think she's a child what the fuck is going on but this interaction kind of inspires Kate to go looking and she finds in Esther's bible all the photos of her old daddies kind of like Romney's like binder full of women it's her binder full of daddies (laughs) in this bible a Bible full of daddies. A Bible full of daddies. And not just our one Lord God. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. No. Okay. <laughs> but through flipping through this, she sees an insignia for Sarn Institute. And this kind of gives her her next breadcrumb on trying to find Esther's origins. Another scene where there's a lot of things going on and it's intercut with the other. So as Kate is kind of pursuing this lead on Sarn Institute, we have a scene where Danny is outside and he kind of conspired with his sister Max to go in the treehouse and try to find the hammer that Esther used to kill sister Abigail. So he's trying to do that. But guess who's in the treehouse because she overheard everything because she always does. Esther. Ends up catching the treehouse on fire and trying to trap Daniel inside. So as this is happening, Daniel escapes. He makes it onto the roof of the treehouse. And the thing is, Esther's waiting on the bottom. So like Daniel is probably like, what do I do? Stay up here in in this burning treehouse roof? Do I go down there with her, this crazy girl with a hammer? Like you could just like, he's really caught between a rock and a hard place, you guys. Like where's this kid supposed to go? He ends up falling to the ground and right before Esther is about to quote unquote, put him out of his misery. Like she did earlier with that little bird with probably the same rock or a rock that looks really similar to that rock. Max comes and what does she do? Does she hit Esther, knock the rock out of her hand? Max ends up saving the day basically. Yeah. Max ends up just pushing Esther over into the snow so that she doesn't like bring the hammer down on Danny. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, Kate is inside and she gets on the phone with Sarn Institute and tries to ask questions about a little girl that was adopted from there. And they're like, I think you're mistaking. This isn't an orphanage. This is a mental institution. So plot twist. My question also was like, how much are these collect calls to Russia that she's just making willy-nilly? <laughs> yes. Like she's making it to the old orphanage. She's calling the Sarn Institute. It's just like, mm-hmm. what? I was like, what phone bill are you running up right now? You're unemployed, ma'am. Like <laughs> you're yeah. calling Russia. Well, really? her husband definitely has them set up in that beautiful house that he probably designed and built. Next um, scene we see they're in the hospital, right? Yes. Because mom to the rescue, she sees the fire blazing from the window and goes out and yes, they go to the hospital. And I have a lot of questions for this hospital. Well, first, we find out that Danny's in intensive care, that he is alive, but we don't know how much he's going to remember about what happened. Because essentially, Kate arrived with Danny flat on his back, bleeding from his nose, and Max and Esther just standing there. And she, of course, like yells, like, what did you do to him? But like, of course, at this point, she kind of looks like she's off her rocker. But Danny's in the ICU and Kate and John, again, are arguing about Esther's origins. She's trying to explain what she learned about the Sarn Institute. John's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Meanwhile, we have Esther who's like, can I go get a soda from the soda machine? First of all, Granny's going with you. Granny should go with you. Granny could go with you. Granny doesn't go. Granny's just like, oh, here's a dollar, honey. And like sends her off. (laughs) 
Max senses there's an issue and granny lets her go find her. I'm like, granny, stand up. Granny, can you just accompany anybody? Like all of these kids are below 10 and you're just trusting mm-hmm. them to walk the wings of the hospital. That's question number one. Question number two, who the fuck works in this hospital? Because I don't think anybody <laughs> does. No one works <laughs> in this fucking hospital because what ends up happening is Esther finds her way into Danny's room and starts to fucking smother him with a pillow. And we're like, is Danny going to make it through this? Because what we hear is doctors go rushing by Kate and John. And they're like, we need a crash cart in room. It's Danny's room. And at this point, he's gone under cardiac arrest. This kid's 13. Why is he going under cardiac arrest? Because Esther fucking tried to finish what she started. Mm -hmm. It's just infuriating to watch. Mom and dad can't get into hospital room like medical professionals. Here they all are. They're trying to do their job at this point. So mom and dad are sent back to the waiting room. Mom freaks out and she slaps Esther in a way that, you know, is so wrong because again, we know how it looks, but in a way for us, the audience is so satisfying (laughs) and she's freaking out. Obviously Esther, the greatest actress looks so hurt. She's even bleeding from the mouth and Kate needs to be sedated. So she also ends up being hospitalized because of the episode that she has. Yeah. And so the next scene we see, John brings Esther and Max home. John puts Maxine to bed. And while Esther is saying goodnight to her sister, she snatches her hearing aids so that Max won't be able to hear anything that goes on, which is just like, ooh, sinister, what's about to happen? On the first floor, John pours a drink or many drinks. That bottle of wine that was left behind, he's just kind of like drowning his sorrows. And Esther begins doing her hair and her makeup and dressing in lingerie. And you're like, Mm -hmm. what is going on? I don't know if it's supposed to imply that John was drugged as well as just being drunk. We're seeing a lot of double. To me, it's just like, I've drank a bottle of wine in a night before. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a lot smaller than Peter Skarsgård is, who plays John. <laughs> and, like, this man is seeing triple from, like, yeah. drinking a bottle, a bottle of, of wine. Of red blend. That's where mm-hmm. I'm like, is there something else at work here? He's seeing, like, triplets of Esther. And I'm like, but, like, when I'm drunk, I don't see triples of anything. I don't see anything. Because mm-hmm. I'm not That's out. Good point. But, essentially, uh, it's a very uncomfortable scene of Esther trying to seduce her dad. Yeah. And at first he's pretty like compassionate. He's like, oh, you're so confused. But then he kind of gives in a little bit to like the emotional manipulation that Esther is setting up. Like she's trying to make him feel so safe and insecure. And he does end up crying because he is so stressed and he is so drunk. But then she tries again in that vulnerability to come onto him. And he's like, no, no. And gets up. And meanwhile, Kate in the hospital gets a call from the Sarn Institute and it's some kind of head guy on the phone. Like this is like the director of the Sarn Institute. Like you just get that vibe. He's in an office. He looks very intellectual. And he basically tells her, hey, if your daughter is who we think it is based on the picture you sent us, this is actually a woman named Lena who was in our institute and was one of our most violent patients who escaped about a year ago, who, according to her records, would be about 33 years old at this time. Does she have the scars? Kate doesn't know what he's talking about, but we realize that they're on her neck and wrists 
from her straitjacket. And those are the exact spaces that our little Esther kept covered with her so sweet and elegant ribbons. While we're having this revelation, it's cut with Esther upstairs after her failed attempt to seduce her father, taking off her makeup, taking off her ribbons, taking out her fake teeth. So we see the scars, we see the age in her mouth, and it's confirmed for us, the viewer, that this is indeed Lena from Sarn Institute. Yeah, wild. They say that it's because she has a hormone disorder. I believe it's hypopituitarism, something like that. I'm not a doctor. Essentially something <laughs> You're that, not? I'm not. I'm, I'm not. You know, I'm not. But... <laughs> Essentially, it's something that her growth got stunted and she presents as a child, even though she is a grown woman. And she used this ability to look very youthful to gain her access to the United States through adoption agencies and stuff like that. So a lot going on here. There's a lot of information being thrown at us at once. Lena slash Esther is throwing her tantrum. You would also think that, like, why wouldn't you just keep Lena? Because Esther already ages the shit out of you. Lena isn't an aged name, in my opinion, at least. But Esther is like, if you're compiling Puritan dresses with the name Esther with Tchaikovsky, it's like, you're burying the lead here. Just keep your fucking name. I understand what, <laughs> like you need to like change your identity, but pick something a little more youthful, girl. Come on. She doesn't want to because she's unique. She wants to be picked. She just wants to be, <laughs> she wants to be different. She's an artist. <laughs> anyway. John is still drunk. He is hearing noises upstairs and is like, fuck, I need to go comfort Esther. Enters Esther's room, sees the black light paintings. And as he's tearing down these paintings, he sees a painting on the wall depicting him and Esther making out in the black light paint. And again, super gross. This is intercut with Kate rushing home after, like she breaks out of the hospital. Again, who the fuck works here and where the fuck is CPS? Because if you just open hand decked a 10 year old in the middle of an emergency room, you're telling me you're not cuffed to the bed or you don't have a social worker just at the ready to be like, oh, okay, we have an alcoholic parent who is abusing her adopted child and like no one's there. Like who works here? Because no one works here. She's able to like untube herself get to the car this is where i write has kate ever driven before yeah she really is, she is crazy she is <laughs> she's sitting she is swerving she is bumping she needs is to go back to, to driver's ed yeah trying to make her way home and, <laughs> and she almost gets in two car accident not even just one not even just one two they like yes. really had to do it up <laughs> I know. And it's just like, do you guys not are not used to snow? Because even in like the shots of their driveway, I'm like, do you just not bother to shovel anymore? Like <laughs> there's there's no salt anywhere. Like there's just there's no there's no treatment. Is it just like a really bad time? I don't know. But in this ensuing chaos with intercut with Kate rushing home, Esther is able to overpower John and stab him repeatedly. And yeah. Maxine witnesses the entire thing. Yeah. And uh, I feel like that scene is like hard enough as it is because of like how personal a knife is. And like, it's because of what I learned from you in this podcast, it's like sexual implications, like is very uncomfortable as a weapon of choice. But also like when you realize Maxine sees that it's, uh, it's just like, I don't know. It was just a very like sad, disturbing scene. But Max is really fucking smart. So she turns around and she runs away. 
Mommy's trying to get home. She does get home. So Esther is in the house. She's trying to find Maxine at this point. She's walking around with, I think she goes and gets the gun. So she gets, she changes her weapon. She gets the gun. And we know that Maxine is in some closet. I wrote mommy's home. Honey's dead. (laughs) (laughs) But how does mommy get home? Remember how she makes her entrance? Oh, (laughs) wait, (laughs) we should say it. Third attempted accident of the night. This woman plows through the side of her own fucking house. (laughs) She thought about that. X Games modes her fucking driveway and crashes through the glass windows of, it's like a window wall type thing. She just fucking crashes Mm -hmm. into her motherfucking living room. I'm like, damn, if your husband wasn't dead before, he'd be dead fucking now. Right. Like, I think you're a manslaughter on your fucking list, lady. Jesus what if Christ. he was just watching TV? What if he was just watching the game? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, she gets out of the car. She sees that her husband instead. And I guess I wrote, she tries really hard to be quiet. Like, I feel like she she has this reaction and it's so, so, so sad. But also I feel like you see her like knowing that there's still danger and she's trying to be quiet. But now that like you just reminded me, she just plowed through the front of her house. I don't know why she's trying so hard to be quiet because like she just made the loudest noise possible. Yeah, you might as well just let her rip and just really feel it. So she finally gets together enough to go and look for Max. She doesn't find anyone, but eventually she makes it into the bathroom and she pulls back the shower curtain thinking that somebody might be in there. No one is there, but I guess because of the layout of their house, there's a little like window in like a frosted window type in the bathroom that would look over like the living room. So you can't see anything through the window. It's just because of this huge open floor plan. It's like windows inside of a house. So because she's holding a flashlight and pulls back the shower curtain and shines it through, Esther sees that she's right in front of the shower. So she shoots her with the revolver that she has. And I don't know where Kate gets shot, but whatever. She basically wises up and is like, all right, no more flashlight. She like quick makes a makeshift tourniquet for her wound and continues looking for her daughter. Max, however, is also on the move. So she's not staying still. Eventually, Max makes it into the little like atrium area. Kate is on top of the atrium. So she's on the glass looking down on her daughter and like signs to her to stay still, which Max does. But Esther then sees Kate through the ceiling and tries to shoot her and then chases after. It's like a whole thing, you guys. (laughs) It's like a whole thing, you guys. Well, because Max unknowingly breaks a pot while she's running away and she can't hear it yeah so that Mm -hmm. brings esther into the atrium and you know kate's trying to be like don't fucking hurt my daughter and Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and it's yeah it's a big whole action scene yeah like just when you think that esther's gonna get max kate breaks through the ceiling because of the damages that are already done to it and falls right on top of esther Max witnesses her mother falling from a very high height. Okay, so if one parental trauma isn't enough, she sees her mother, goes to her mother, Kate gets up and walks out of the house with Maxine to try to get away from the house. And this scene to me felt very Halloween. I felt very much like I did when our girl, what is her name again? Lori Strode. When Lori Strode kept walking away from Michael Myers and I felt very like, Lori, like, let's not. However, Kate took the gun. Which I'm like, true. thank you. You're right. Thank you. You're right. What a relief. So the police are also coming because when Kate was on her way home, she phoned the police. So they make it outside and they're down by the lake. They hear the sirens and you think they're in the clear, but then all of a sudden, little Esther comes up behind him with the knife because she's still got her other weapon of choice. 
ensue battle between mommy and daughter Esther. They are fighting, okay, on the ice now. We're on the ice, which us, the audience, we know this is like the major arena. Max gets the gun that had fallen in the skull. Little girl Max is holding this gun, shoots her shot into the ice, which causes enough of like, like a break in the ice that Esther and her mother fall into the icy water. And now we have an underwater scuffle. There are underwater stabs. We are scuffling. Next thing you know, ooh, Kate gets this nice elbow back crack right into Esther's fucking face. And Esther floats into the dark water (laughs) as Kate makes her way out. And you think she's just about to clear the hole in the water, make it to her daughter. But then fucking Esther, because again, Michael Myers, okay? She's alive. She comes out, she grabs her mommy's foot and she's like, mommy, don't let me die. And Kate goes, I'm not your mommy. And fucking whacks her in the face with her foot in the most satisfying, like, oh, I don't know what it was about it. Like the sound effects or like the way it hit knocks Esther back. And then we have our final scene of Esther falling into the water. Finally, this time dead. And then mommy and daughter Max walk to safety. Which fun fact, I don't know what role he played in this movie. I don't know if he executive produced it, but Leonardo DiCaprio was a big force behind this movie being made. And Esther's death scene was based off of Kate Winslet in Titanic. Shut the front door. I'm serious. <laughs> Yo. Oh, you mean his death scene, right? Jack's death scene. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yes. I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I knew what you meant. I knew what you meant. So I didn't like catch it. But then I was like, wait a second. Yeah. Oh yeah. It is very much like that. That makes a lot of sense. Now that you say that, if he was a part of the movie, I don't know how that connection wouldn't have been made because it is very much like the cold, icy, dark waters. Oh, but it's so different. Instead of looking at that and feeling sad, you're looking at that and you're like, thank goodness. Yeah. It's like, I'm glad there wasn't room for two on the door. You know, you just like, she just fucking mule kicked that kid Mm -hmm. in her jaw and she like just fucking floated down. And, but you knew in that mommy scene, you saw that she still had the knife behind her back. So like, as the viewer, there was no Mm -hmm. doubt in your mind that she was all evil. There was no, like the end of my life. I feel bad about my decisions. Like you knew that she was going to continue with this violence. Right. And my closing thoughts were two, because there were also like scenes where Esther like straddled Kate and was trying to stab her and stuff like that. I'm like, can no one overpower this hundred pound menace? It doesn't like, even though she's 33, it's not like they decided to give this girl background in jujitsu, right? Like, it's not like this girl (laughs) has this, like, it's just something that bothers me so much about John's death scene is the fact that I'll let you get stabbed once or twice. And yeah, that's painful. But you could literally shove her off of you with one arm. You're a grown ass man. Like, I'm sorry. I understand. I understand you're drunk. And that's the thing. When you're underwater and it's cold, that's a brand new game. Like, they can do whatever the fuck they want with, like, the Kate versus Esther thing. But, like, can no one overpower? Like, this girl's shorter than I am. I am 5'1", right? And this girl probably (laughs) had to be in the 4'5 range. Like, you can't... If you bear hug me in the wrong direction, you could throw me anywhere, right? Like, I don't understand, like, I don't understand, like, what made this person such a force. Like, I understand how she could orchestrate shit because she's smart. But when it comes to, Mm -hmm. like, if you're going to put me, this should be an episode. If you're going to put me in a cage match against any of our final girls or if any of our, like, like, evil, like, heroines or whatever like that. 
I can take Esther down. Like, <laughs> I'm saying that, heard it right here, folks. I'm going to take Esther down. At least Esther, when she's a 12-year-old playing a 33-year-old, right. I can take Esther down. Like, that's the only thing that was unbelievable to me about this, where it was just Good like, point. no one can, like, grab this brat by the hair and be like, closet time, and you're done. Like, that's it. Right. I don't know. <sighs> such a good point i guess we are supposed to rely on that that he is drunk and that she like stabbed him Mm -hmm. and like compromised his strength before he realized what was going on but still i feel like that adrenaline after one bottle of wine for a big big man man you're right it shouldn't have gone down as easily as it did there was a point he was just laying there and she was just like like stabbing it was kind of weird my final thought is like, oh, that was a nice resolution. That was a nice ending. But like in the reality of the situation, no matter what, Kate is going down for all of this. Mm. She's well, now she has the doctor. She has the doctor at the Institute, though. Is that enough to like just say yeah. that like, ma'am, your vehicle is in your living room <laughs> and ma'am, you open hand slapped a minor with multiple witnesses in an emergency room this evening. Mm-hmm. Man, the son that was in your care earlier today is still on life support in the hospital. Your mother, <laughs> you know, the mother-in-law isn't on her fucking side, even though she was there. Grammy's mm-hmm. still at the hospital, presumably, but like now her son's dead. So it's just like, and what's Maxine going to say? Like, she's a kid. You can't trust kids. All I'm saying is like, as much as I wanted to feel good about that ending, because obviously Esther said, I am just seeing a lot of CPS charges going against Vera mm. Farmiga, and that's going to be the end of that. Well, they haven't showed up so far, so maybe they'll just stay away. Maybe. All right, well, so talk to me about this story that you have. Yeah, so so it's funny because the movie is actually based on a real-life case that happened about... Somebody who is posing as a 13-year-old boy who had a similar hormonal disorder and threatened their siblings and whatever. So that's what this was based off of. But then we had sometimes the unfortunate case of horror movies inspiring other bad things that happen. Like, for example, the Scream franchise, there were two teenagers who killed another one of their friends wanting to be the new ghost faces. Like, sometimes these things happen. And... There was a case in 2010. This is of a girl called Natalia Barnett. She was adopted from the Ukraine at age six by Michael and Christine Barnett. According to her parents, after a while, Natalia started acting strangely. The mother, Christine, reported that the girl was threatening the family, standing over them at night. And I'd even saw her once trying to pour bleach into Christine's morning coffee. Christine began to suspect that Natalia was not actually a child, backed with the suspicion that Natalia's sophisticated vocabulary, lack of interest in toys, and medical tests, which supposedly showed that Natalia having a bone density and teeth of a teen or young adult, though later tests disputed these conclusions. But after this belief, Christine kind of like narrowed it in her head that like this six-year-old can in no way be six. So after several months, they went to court and had the date of her birth changed so that on record, her age was actually 22 instead of, at this point, maybe eight years old. She does have a form of dwarfism, but they asserted that she was older than her records indicated, so that in 2013, they were able to rent her an apartment and move her to Canada, just in an apartment by herself as a child. 
essentially. So later, legal charges were waged against the Barnetts when in 2014, Natalia reported to police that she had been abandoned. The Barnetts were charged of two counts of felony neglect to a minor. Christine still maintains that Natalia is dangerous in running a scam as an adult, while Michael, now divorced from Christine, claims the couple knew the entire time that Natalia was a child, but Christine convinced everybody to lie about her age. When asked about the case, Christine specifically referenced the 2009 film Orphan saying, the movie Orphan is exactly what happened to me. I remember hearing about this. I remember it too. And literally I had Googled this the other day. Well, obviously I found this in like research looking up for the movie, but the charges against the parents were dropped like last year. The abandonment charges and the all that kind of stuff were dropped. But Natalia is with a different family now. She is under a different family's care and they're trying to bring it up to the Supreme Court to kind of like really prove that like, yeah, you really just took this prepubescent girl and put her in an apartment <gasps> by herself and abandoned her. Like, where's the justice here? So it's wow. it's wild. I mean, because and I even tried to like Google like, how old is she actually? Like this girl went on Dr. Phil to like mm-hmm. talk about this experience and like Dr. Phil like straight up asked her like, are you an adult pretending to be a child? And she's like, no, I'm 16 now. It's wild, oh, but it's- shit. But th- it kind of leads into how the movie- has some xenophobic threads weaving in and out of it. The fact that Esther is Russian with a Russian accent, just the kind of connotations that come with that. The movie got a lot of shit from international adoption agencies about perpetuating negative stereotypes about people from Russia and essentially discouraging American families from looking into international adoptions. Which, like, who's consulting a horror movie before making those decisions for themselves? But I also understand that it's perpetuating negative stereotypes. But I did see that you saw another type of stereotype that it was perpetuating. So originally, you know, thinking about this movie and how it might affect people looking to adopt, I thought that this element of dwarfism made this movie, like, unbelievable enough where it would maybe not have so much of a negative impact on the adoption agency as being such a mainstream film. But there is also criticism about this stereotype. Well, it's called the depraved dwarf is the stereotype. And I was not cognizant of this stereotype until I read about it because of this movie. And now that I've read about it, I, I feel, I don't know, I just feel informed. And I thought it was really interesting. So I did a little bit of research. So from tvtropes.org, there is a stereotype in TV's movies, stories called the depraved dwarf. And the site reads, quote, dwarfs in fiction are fairly uncommon. When they do show up, they tend to be either comic relief or playing fantasy creatures. But then there's these guys. The depraved dwarf is a pint-sized bucket of malice. He, and it's pretty much always a he, is either a sadistic psychopath, a twisted rapist, or at the very least, a violent, cold-blooded criminal. They tend to show up when the hero has been rendered helpless, often expect giggling. So I was like, what the heck? So this site has a whole lot of examples, literally beautifully organized into like anime, comic books, fiction, this, that, like all of these different categories they have. So some examples I saw that I immediately recognized were... Rumpelstiltskin from that very famous fairy tale, Dr. Psycho from the Harley Quinn franchise. I feel like I've like I've seen him before. And then also Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones. 
And he has this really good quote. He says, anyone named Desmond Craig Hall must be a pervert. And Sansa replies to him, I hear that you're a pervert. And he responds, I am the imp. I have certain standards to maintain. So again, Tyrion Lannister's character played by Peter Dinklage, just showing an awareness of the tropes that his character exists in, I think is really prevalent. And others that surprised me, because we're not always seeing human examples of this trope, include, according to this site, Plankton from SpongeBob, Leprechauns from the Leprechaun franchise, and then the aliens from Mars Attacks. So I just thought that that was really interesting and something that I was not, like I said, conscious of. And so, you know, that criticism that others had, I wouldn't have thought of initially, but I'm just glad to know that that stereotype exists now because I can see how that would be problematic. Yeah. And especially being that I'm not quite sure, but dwarfism is kind of like the medical term, but obviously like the term little people is a little more like accepted and things of that nature. We're obviously not trying to like perpetuate anything. Before I even read your note about like what it was, I was like, oh, this is like leprechaun. He's a very depraved, super hyposexual, degrading, pervish. And that almost kind of reminds me of that kind of representation you kind of see in the Austin Powers movies of little people kind of acting like a weird, like comedic relief or over-sexualized, whatever. Yeah, mini-me. Yeah, yeah. He was on there. Yeah, it's so like, obviously, the movie was really using Lena slash Esther's condition as a masking for a big plot twist, which... We've seen different ideations of that, you know, that being like the punchline. So I don't know how productive that is. Obviously, I think it was a good twist for the time. But it's interesting of how they're going to do this moving forward, especially because of that second movie you mentioned earlier. Well, you wrote about it, and I'm sure you did more research than I did. I just know it's coming out soon. Yeah. So, you know, we decided to do this movie primarily because it was wintertime themed. And I was like, I know there's a lot of snow in the movie, so let's do that. And obviously it's a great movie. But while researching the film, we realized that there is a prequel coming out called Orphan First Kill. It concluded filming in December 2020 and may make an appearance as early as fall 2022 or early 2023 with Isabel Furman reprising her role as Esther and telling the story of how Esther came to the United States and what happened with her first family. And I put like dot, dot, dot somehow because when she was playing a nine-year-old you know she was 12 pretending to be 33 and now she is in her 20s still kind of pretending to be a nine-year-old who's playing 33 so it's a weird like little conundrum i did read some exciting things from isabel Furman how she was so excited to reprise the role she said that she essentially shot the movie on her knees just kind of like walking around on her knees and then a lot of her face shots are going to be de-aged and i know that they had to do that with the second it movie they had like all of the kids and the first movie really primarily focused on the kids and then the second movie focuses on the adults and the kids and a lot of those kids were on the precipice of puberty in between filming of the movies so they really had to de-age their faces down yeah it's going to be interesting to see what comes of it but i'm excited I know we're wrapping up and like, I feel good that I finally got to see this movie because I heard so much about it. And my 
boyfriend told me this story about when he was in the eighth grade, he watched this movie with a friend and it freaked him out so much that by the time he was walking home, he had himself convinced that his family had adopted a child while he was away at this friend's house sleeping over. And he was (laughs) like, he went home and he was like, pissed because he was like my parents adopted a kid and this kid's gonna try to kill me and I'm not pleased he had this whole thing in his head (laughs) so yeah he didn't rewatch it with me it didn't work out this time but maybe it was for the best I don't know if he would be ready to venture back into this well at least you got to see it and I'm glad because you were really scared for this so I'm glad that you you know Mm -hmm. enjoyed it you enjoyed your time like I said Vera Farmiga is amazing it's well Farmiga did amazing Mm -hmm. this movie scared the shit out of me when I saw this in theaters at this point almost 12 years ago which is like crazy but that's Orphan yeah so thanks for listening if you want to keep up with us in our crazy and consistent schedule right now, which is like, <laughs> hey, we love spontaneity. You just can't pin us down. Like, you really can't. You can't. We make We're our just own free light. spirits. <laughs> mm-hmm. You just go where the wind blows. Anyway, if you want to go along with us, you can follow us on Instagram at the horrors podcast, or you can email us at the horrors podcast at gmail.com. You can tell us about your experience with the orphan. Were you afraid of your parents adopting somebody when you got (laughs) home from your friend's house? (laughs) Tell us about it. Do you know how to drive? Do you know how to drive on snow? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Do you How many times is too many times to almost get in a car accident in one movie? Do you have a strange relationship with a frozen over body of water? Let us Mm. know. (laughs) Yeah, let us know. (laughs) Until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. 